Okay, so uh, today we make a historic turn. Uh, we start the life of David today. Did you know that? Amazing, right? So what have we done? Well, first we did Proverbs. Check. Proverbs is done. Uh, why did we do Proverbs? Because I wanted to be a celebrity pastor. I wanted the big bucks. I wanted to finally give you good advice. I finally wanted to tell you what to do. I have been waiting for 20-something years to tell you how to live, and it finally happened in Proverbs. Aren't you glad? Check. Done with Proverbs. Second, Isaiah. We did Isaiah. Check. Why Isaiah? Because Isaiah says the hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. And Isaiah was saying, so how do you trust God? And the answer is, see God. That's the cause that produces the effect of faith or trusting God. The hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. And Isaiah says, here he is. And when you see him, you trust him. So it's an amazing book, right? What you need, what I need is to see Jesus, to see God in order to grow in our faith, to grow in our trust, to grow in our rest, to grow in our reliance, to grow in your rejoicing. Now at last we're at the life of David. I mean, this is the one I was looking forward to. This is the one that I might have threw in an extra vote or two to make sure we did it. Just saying, maybe, I don't know. So why the life of David? Why do the life of David? Uh, so the psychology department at Duke did an experiment a while back on this. Are you ready? How long can rats swim? It was a very uplifting experiment. And do not, do not, some of you, feel sorry for the rat. That's not allowed. All right, you ready? Rat number one was placed in the container with no possibility of escape. He lasted maybe... 30 seconds, ducks his head and drowns. Rat number two, placed in the container with the possibility of escape. This rat swam for hours. So what's the conclusion of the experiment? Here's the conclusion. We usually say as long as there is life, there's hope. Perhaps it's the opposite. As long as there's hope, there's life. As long as there's hope, there's life. The life of David is for you. You who are treading water without hope. What's the secret to David's deep connection with God? Hope. What's the secret to David's inner strength? I mean, everybody knows David has that inner strength. Everyone knows he's a man after God's heart, that deep connection with God. Everyone knows that he has phenomenal courage. He has leadership and bold action. What's the secret to all of that? Hope. What's the secret to David's deep, deep connection with others? I mean, he has a team that will lay down their life for him. 
They're called the mighty men. I mean, people were flocking to him. What's the secret to those deep connecting relationships and friendships that he has? Hope. Well, what's the secret to his endurance? Because, man, he endures suffering. I mean, David suffers. He's written some of the most, yes, poetic, but most penetrating psalms about the human condition. He has a psalm that actually ends with, darkness is my friend. David suffered like few suffer in the human race on this planet. And what's the secret to him enduring such suffering? Hope. He swam for hours. But we also can say the flip, can't we? What's the reason why David was disconnected from God so badly at times? Loss of hope, despair. What's the reason for his great sins and these massive spiritual failures? Massive. He probably makes every one of us feel good when we see them. Answer, loss of hope, despair. What's the reason that he had such horrible wreckage in his marriage and with his children and with other leaders and folks in the church at that time? Answer, loss of hope, despair. What's the reason that he had such an inability to lead at times, where he wasn't able to even do the next thing. He just sat in the ashes. Loss of hope, despair. As long as there's hope, there's life. Welcome to the story of hope. That's the life of David. And it begins where I thought, I was like, where do I begin? I mean, because this is a series of like four, probably to eight sermons. And I'm like, what? where do you begin? And I, as soon as I read it, I was like, that's where you begin. You begin with David's best friend, of course. So here's what we're going to do. It's a long text. And so part of the journey is actually entering into the world of this text. I want you to smell it. I want you to see it. I want you to hear the sounds of the text. I want you to feel the force of the text. I want you to be an Israelite. I want you to be in a cave. I want you to be a Philistine on top of a mountain. I want you to be a church person, and I want you to be the king, and then I want you to see what David's best friend does. And then at the end, I'm going to have a stand and read the text, okay? So right now, hold on. But we're going to put it up while we do this. Because there's some backstory. I'm just starting in the middle of a book, so I've got to give you some backstory as we read, as needed. Hopefully it's not too overwhelming. One day Jonathan, this is David's future best friend, so he's not his best friend at this point, son of Saul, Saul's the king, the leader of Israel. So the quick backstory is a week ago from today's events, Saul grossly disobeys God, grossly. So what does God do? God says, you will no longer have a royal dynasty. In other words, you'll no longer have a son on the throne, a grandson on the throne, and a great-grandson on the throne. In other words, Jonathan will not be a king, which is too bad, which is really too bad. Um, 
One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father, right? Saul, the king, the leader, was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave. Now, if you have your Bible, we'll have a little footnote because it will literally say, literally, under a pomegranate tree. So he's sitting under a pomegranate tree, okay? The people who were with him were about 600 men. The quick backstory is he started with 330,000 men. It shrinks a week ago to 3,000 men. So 327,000 men have fled him already. And now it has shrunken down to 600, so 2,400 men have left. And it gets worse. We're told in 1 Samuel 13, there were no blacksmiths in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines says, we don't want the Hebrews to make spears or swords or weapons. <laughs> Do you get this? So the 600 that are with him have no weapons. They have pitchforks and shovels and rakes. Oh, and it gets worse. The Philistines have 30,000 chariots, not of bronze, but of iron. I want you to think of a tank meeting the human body. The Philistines have 6,000 horsemen. Think speed. Think cheetah versus a sloth. The Philistines have infantry, quote, like sand on the seashore in a multitude, and they're armed with first-class iron weapons. They are the transition into the Iron Age out of the Bronze Age. Amazing. Think knife through butter. Okay, are you ready? So let's talk about your bad day. So who is with Saul, including verse 3, Ahijah? Okay, so Ahijah's the priest. He's the religious leader. He's the church. So the church is with Saul. But what kind of church? The backstory in the church is Ahijah is the current pastor of a failed church, the church of Eli. It's failed. God rejected this church way back in chapter 2, years ago. So Ahijah is the son of Ahitib, Ichabod's brother, Ichabod was one of the founding pastors of this failed church of Eli, son of Phineas. Phineas was a celebrity pastor and a woman-chasing pastor in the failed church of Eli. And then he was the son of Eli, and Eli was the original church planter of the now failed church of Eli. You get the picture? This is a failed church. But it's just so interesting. Ahijah is the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. In other words, he's wearing a minister collar. Hey, I'm clergy. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozaz. You see that? You know what that's called? <laughs> it's called the Slippery Rock. So who named the Slippery Rock? Some dude with binoculars that watched the first person slide off the rock. That's who named Slippery Rock. All right. And the name of the other is Senna, Thorny Rock. In other words, it's Bone Breaker. So the one crag rose to the north in front of Michmash, the slippery rock, and the other on the south in front of Jibia, the bone breaker. So you have two massive crags, slippery rock, bone breaker, and then there's this wadi that goes down right through the middle on its way to the Jordan. It's like the worst terrain possible. Jonathan says to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go to the other side, to the garrison of these uncircumcised. 
It may be, perhaps, that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer says to him, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. I'm going down the other way. No, behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, pay attention. We will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and we will not go up to them. In other words, the Philistines would be fighting from the high ground. That's not a good thing. But if they say, come up to us, in other words, come up to even ground, he's going to say, let's roll. Then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines start trash-talking. Oh, look, here come the cavemen coming out of their caves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor-bearer, and says, Come up to us, man, we'll show you how real men fight. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord has given him into the hand of Israel. Do not miss that. That is a specific verbal tense that says it's done. The Lord's given him to us. It's over. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. They're climbing bone breaker, okay? And his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer who killed them after him. So Jonathan is an expert Greco-Roman wrestler that has an incredibly good stand-up game. And his armor bearer was an expert in Krav Maga, and it just went like that. At the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men within 15 yards. So maybe in the span of this area right in here. And there was panic. This word is mentioned three times in this one verse. In the camp, in the field, among all the people. In other words, panic is everywhere. It is the dominating emotion in this text right now. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. Second time it's mentioned. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Third time, unimaginable panic. Panic. All right, let's stand here. We'll finish it out. And the watchmen of Saul, they're looking at this take place on the other side of the mountain. The watchmen are like, what is happening? And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, pay attention. The multitude was literally, the text says, melting away. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who's gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went with them at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult or the confusion in the camp of the Philistines increased, increased, increased. It just kept increasing. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, these are mercenaries, these are traitors. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, remember those 330,000 that left? 
who had hidden themselves in the hill country, when they heard the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. That's the point. And the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would be the strength of our heart in this text. So would you strengthen our heart by this text? You're the strength of our heart. Become that experientially right now in this text. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. All right, so as long as there's hope, there's life. As long as there's hope, you can swim for hours. So what does no hope, what does despair look like? Verse 2, Saul, the king, the leader, and this is, do not miss this, in chapter 9, it is said of him that he will deliver, the, deliver Israel from the Philistines because God was telling Samuel the prophet at the time, because I hear the wailing and the misery of my people. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree at Migron. Saul is, is sitting. Saul is literally sitting under a tree. Saul is stuck. Saul is frozen. Saul is paralyzed. Saul doesn't know what to do. Saul is thinking to himself, I've tried everything, I don't know what to do. Saul is thinking, I am so anxious and fearful. I'm paralyzed. I'm stuck. What does hope, no hope, what does, what does despair look like? It looks like Saul. It looks like sitting. Stuck. I'm stuck. tried everything. I can't go on. I don't know what to do. As long as there is hope, there is life. Hope is coming. What does no hope despair look like? Let's look at verse 3. So, including Ahijah. Okay, so Ahijah, the priest, the religious leader of the church, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, all that, yada, yada, yada. Again, this is not just any church. This is a failed church. This church has failed. So what does a failed church look like? What does a failed church do? In verse 16, here's what happens. And the watchmen of Saul, remember, they're seeing all this happen on the other mountain. They're like, what is happening? And behold, pay attention. The multitude's melting away. Saul says to the people who are with him, count and see who's gone from us. They counted. Jonathan's gone. In verse 18, so Saul says to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. What does a failed church do? Saul and Ahijah are using the ark like magic to try to activate God. They're using the ark like magic to try to connect with God. They're using the ark as a self-activating mechanism to try to get God to love them and bless them and work for them and be with them and help them. 
What does a failed church do? A failed church is stuck in the world of self-activation. A failed church is constantly thinking, I've got to activate God in my life. I've got to activate my relationships if they're going to happen. I've got to activate work if there's going to be any. I've got to activate life or there is no life. But don't miss this. God already said back in chapter 9, go defeat the Philistines. In other words, God already gave his word. Do you know what that means when God already gave his word? God is already activated. Now look at verse 16 again. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, remember behold in the, in the Old Testament means pay attention, look, open your eyes, see what's happening. The multitude was dispersing here and there. So the watchmen see it. The watchmen, the people that watch, the people that are looking, the people that are observant, they're like, they're watching it happen. They're seeing that God is already at work. God is on the move. God is already activated. The watchmen see it with crystal clarity in the mind and they feel it deep in their heart. We don't activate God. God is already activated. God is already on the move. God is already at work. Because all of God is about grace. He doesn't get activated. He activates himself by grace. Just in case we're still skeptical, let's look at verse 19. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest... You see what's happening? It's God's already activated. It's already happening. Things are already moving, but he still can't shake it. He and the priest still can't shake it. They still think they have to activate God. They still think they got to get God to like them and love them and be on their side and bless them and work for them and do something and use them. I've got to do this. So they quickly, while Saul's talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp is getting increasing more and more and more. And so finally Saul says to the priest, withdraw your hand, this doesn't work. Saul finally gets it. We don't activate God. God's already activated. God's already at work. And then that's when he finally got the troops together and said, let's go. You don't activate God. God is already activated. And you know that if you begin to get that, you can swim forever. Forever. But a failed church thinks, but a failed church feels, but a failed church experiences, a failed church does life, a failed church is trying and trying to connect with God, trying and trying to connect with each other, and trying and trying to connect with mission and ministry and engaging the culture in the world of self-activation. What does no hope or despair look like? It looks like the failed church of Eli. It looks like 
trying and trying and trying and trying and trying to activate God in your life. As long as there is hope, there is life. Hope is coming. What does no hope despair look like? This is the last one. We're going to go to verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden themselves. Right? Literally, it's like, oh, here come the cavemen. Right? Lots of trash talking. So the Philistines are human strength. The Philistines trust in human strength. The Philistines are trusting in their own strength. They're relying on their own strength. They're rejoicing in their own strength. What happens when we do this? What happens when you and I trust in our own strength? What happens when that happens? You know what happens? First, we become mean. We become mean people. We abuse others. We grind the weak into ground. We literally grind them into caves in the ground. Human strength leaves body bags behind. When human strength gets corporate and forms an institution or a state, body bags are everywhere. When human strength runs rampant in a marriage, there's a body bag in that marriage. What else happens when we trust in human strength, when we trust in our own strength? The second thing is we become self-delusional. I mean, you see, Jonathan is actually counting on their delusion. Jonathan is actually counting on the blindness of human strength. He's counting on the arrogance and these feelings of superiority that come from human strength. He's counting on the delusion of human strength. I mean, the high ground is always the advantage in a war. The high ground is always the advantage in a fight. Do you see that? I mean, has everyone played King of the Hill? You remember that game? Everyone knows this. You didn't have to read Mao Tutsi or whatever the guy is, The Art of War. You didn't have to read that book to know that the high ground is the advantage. That is the strategic advantage. That is the way you fight wars. You don't have to do that. Human strength is a form of insanity. It's a form of delusion because it's, it's this sense. You know what the word is in the Greek? It's really fascinating. The word in the Greek is inflammation. Your heart's inflamed. Isn't that a great word? You know when you're inflamed, your body's inflamed? Well, Human weakness, in its essence, is an inflammation of human nature. It's inflamed. It's not working right. Something's wrong when you trust in your strength. You're inflamed. Your heart's inflamed. The third thing that happens when we trust in our own strength is that we're actually weak. Two men kill 20 men. Two men kill 20 strong men in 15 yards without breaking a sweat. How does the Bible describe human strength? Are you ready? Let's put verse 15 up there. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders panicked. And the earth 
panicked, and it became a very great panic. Panic, 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 a very great panic down in the roots of your being. It's not that I'm panicking, it's I am panic. Human strength is weakness. It's panic. What does no hope despair look like? It looks like the Philistines. Trusting in your own strength. It looks like a failed church trying to activate God. It looks like Saul sitting under a pomegranate tree, frozen in himself. As long as there is hope, there is life. Hope is coming. So what is hope? What is hope? <laughs> Let's go to verse 16. Oh, verse 6, sorry. Verse 6, Malachi. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be, perhaps, perhaps that the Lord will work for us. How can he even, I mean, just don't miss this. I mean, how does he even have this courage? How does he even have this boldness? How does he even get up for the day? How does he even get out of bed? How does he move forward in his relationships? How does he move forward when it feels like the world's sinking? How does he do move forward amidst all uncertainty? How does he move forward with himself? And 300 and something thousand well-armed men all around him. And broken bone breaker he's got to climb. How does he even move forward? Answer, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. For nothing can stop the Lord. For nothing can stop the Lord. For nothing can stop the Lord from saving you. What is courage? Nothing can stop the Lord from saving me. What's boldness and bravery? Nothing can stop the Lord from saving me. What's action? For nothing can stop the Lord from saving me and others. What's church? For nothing can stop the Lord from saving us. What's cultural engagement? For nothing can stop the Lord from saving by many or by few. Can sitting, being frozen, I'm stuck, I've tried everything, I don't know what to do, stop the Lord from saving you? Nothing. Can church failure stop the Lord from saving you and others? Can you and others and churches that are stuck and myself stuck and trying to activate God, trying to activate our relationships, trying to activate work, trying to activate the culture, trying to activate, trying to activate, trying to activate, can that stop the Lord from saving you and others? Nothing. Can human strength, this sense of I've got to trust my own strength, self-strength, can self-strength, can human strength, can your meanness that comes from it, can your blindness and delusion and arrogance that comes from it, from your terror and your panic, can it stop the Lord from saving you and others? Nothing, nothing, nothing can stop the Lord from saving you and others. What is hope? Hope is believing this. 
Nothing can stop the Lord from saving me and saving others. I believe it. I can swim forever. Look how powerful this good news is. Verse 7. And his armor bearer says to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. How does that happen? For nothing can stop the Lord from saving us. That's how it happens. It's so powerful. It changed his armor bearer on the spot. Or as Bradley Norris says, it's the gospel changing us on the spot in our seats. Right now. Soon as the armor bearer hears what this Jonathan, this best friend of David says, he says, for nothing, for nothing can stop the Lord from saving us. He changes on this. I'm with you, dude. Let's go. I'm with you. Notice the Bible, what the Bible doesn't say. This is so important. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm, um, well, I think I want to say it nicer instead of salty. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it very nicely. And I said it last week. You remember what I said about him? He says, you not, only, you not only have to tell people the truth, you have to tell them what's not true or they will never get what's true. But when you tell people what's not true, it can sound salty, which I don't mind sounding salty. But in today's cultural climate, it's very interesting to do. So, I want you to see what's not true so that you get what is true. Are you ready? <laughs> You're like, oh no. Yeah, there are seat belts. You could put crash helmets on. If you need to club your ears, you know, parents, you can do that. Notice the Bible doesn't say to the sitting. To those of us who are sitting, notice the Bible doesn't say get off your beep. It doesn't say move, go, do something. It doesn't try to inspire you. It doesn't try to give you 10 steps on how to put your right foot on the ground and move forward. It doesn't unlock some secret cushion that can elevate you and get you up and get you moving. What does it say? What does the Bible say? It says to you, nothing can stop the Lord from saving you. And now you move forward. Notice the Bible doesn't say to the self-activating, the failed church of Eli, would you activate this ark of God over here, these spiritual disciplines, these secrets, these steps, these surrenders to activate God in your life? Would you activate your relationships by being authentic? Would you please activate church and mission and ministry with sold-out discipleship? What does the Bible say? Nothing. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving you and others. And now you're activated. And then the last one, notice the Bible doesn't say to human strength, the Philistines, be humble. Be humble, dudes. 
Stop being mean. Stop being arrogant. Stop being blind. Stop being a jerk. Stop being delusional. Stop panicking. Stop, stop, stop. It doesn't say love others. It says nothing can stop God from saving you. So what do you do now, Philistine? Repent of your self-trust. Because you now know deep in your bones that your self-trust, your trust in your strength is actually weakness. You feel it in a school of experience. And trust in God's strength because now you know that trusting in God's strength is a present power, a present strength with you right now. So you got to tell them what's true and you got to tell them what's not true so that they get what's true. If you want to be these things, if you want to be activated, if you want to stop sitting and being stuck, if you want to stop being arrogant and superior, not just in your actions but in your behavior, if you want to, the answer is nothing can stop God from saving you. All right. Did you notice what was happening in the midst of the Philistine defeat, though? I don't know what verse it is because I don't have it down here. But did you notice what's going on? I'll tell you this. The ancients knew what was going on. When the ancients saw it, they sat up straight. When the ancients read it, they go, oh, my. When the ancients, more than the tumult, more than the Philistines and what they were doing, more than even what Jonathan's doing, when the ancients read this text, there was one thing in the text that clued them into something was going on that was not normal, that something extraordinary was happening in the world, that something was breaking in from another world into this world's realm. The ancients saw it. The watchmen saw it. They looked. They opened their eyes. They couldn't believe it. Everyone in that world knew what was happening. What was it? The earth quaked. Why? Because the earthquake meant God was actually on the move. In the Bible, when the earthquake, God was present. In the Bible, when the earthquake, God showed up. When the earthquake, God broke in. Years later, there's a son of David that dies on a cross. Years later, there's a better David that dies on a cross. Now, everyone dies, so who cares? Everyone dies. That's nothing new. So why should you care about some son of David, some better David that died 2,000 years ago? So he died. Many people were crucified on a cross in those days. Many people died more horrific deaths than he died. What's so special about his death? Why should you care about his death? What does his death matter at all to you and me today? In Matthew, it says this, and behold, remember, pay attention, and behold, open your eyes, behold, look, Matthew says, look. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and there's more. The earth quaked. 
tombs were opened and the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, when this warrior and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earth quake, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. His death saves you. Nothing, nothing can stop God from saving you. Nothing. Believe it, I believe. And you have your hope. And you can swim forever and ever and ever. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, your word is breathtaking, literally breathtaking. And at the same time, it gives us breath. It gives us life. At the same time, it is our food. It is our everything. At the same time, it's the air we breathe. It speaks us back to life.